0: Cock and Ball podcast a look at all things Spurs in the time it takes you to walk from Seven Sisters to White Hart Lane. Uh, A reminder, you can follow us on social media. Ash, uh, any help with what the social media handles are.
1: You can find us on Twitter on Cock and Ball underscore pod, or if you just search Cock and Ball, you'll find us on Facebook as well.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Jim, the token outsider from Stockport, drafted into a Tottenham podcast because my friends didn't know which buttons to press to make this thing work. Uh, I'm standing in today for the all-round good egg, Tom, who unfortunately can't be with us today, so it's a perfect trifecta on today's panel. Uh, Alongside me is Italy's answer to Lionel Messi in height, if not in stature, it's Ashley. (laughs) Go And alongside him is Hammersmith's answer to Zinedine Zidane in hairline, if not in talent. It's Jules.
2: Oh, savage, mate. How are you doing?
0: (laughs) Very good, thanks, mate. Good to have us all on, and it'll be interesting to see if we can make this thing work with three of us. Uh, So let's see how it goes. Um, We try on this pod to bring a bit of humour and comedy and things that are a little bit different to everybody else, but it feels... Uh, today, like it's appropriate to start on a, on a bit of a sad note, uh, since we last recorded, it was confirmed that uh, Diego Maradona died last week at the age of 60. Uh, probably, according to most people, the best footballer that's ever graced the earth. Uh, and I know, Ash, this is something you wanted to reflect on. Big loss for the game, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, none of us were around to watch him play, but by all accounts from everyone before us, and you can find the clips on YouTube, but the guy was an absolute magician. Uh, On account of us not being there to see him ply his craft, I thought it would be most appropriate to find some of the quotes that probably the people far more informed than us had to say about the great man. So I'll start with Jose Mourinho, who said, with him on the ball, you didn't know where he finished and where the ball started. Garolinica said when referring to the second goal against England in 1986, which was also then voted the goal of the century. When Diego scored that goal against us, I felt like a boarding. I'd never felt like that before, but it's true. And not just because it was such an important game, it was also impossible to score such a beautiful goal. He's the greatest player of all time by a long way, a genuine phenomenon. Ben Hoddle said, Maradona to win the World Cup on his own, and let's face it, that's what he did, as the rest of the team were ordinary was an amazing achievement. He was the best player I've seen. Lionel Messi. Even if I played for a million years, I'd never come close to Maradona. Not that I'd want to anyway. He's the greatest there's ever been. Gianfranco Zola. I was lucky enough to be his teammate and to play with him as well as watch him train every day. The things he did, he was and will always be unique. Off the ball, I always liked his simplicity. He was Maradona. Yet with his teammates, he seemed like an ordinary lad like the rest of us. He didn't behave at all like a football star. Fabio Cannavaro, Maradona is a god to the people of Naples. Maradona changed history. In 80 years, we'd always suffered fighting against relegation. It's in seven seasons with him, we won two leagues, the UEFA Cup, two Italian Cups. I'm a fan too, and to live these years with Maradona was incredible. Being on the pitch when they won the Scudetto was amazing. Michel Platini, what Zidane could do with a ball, Maradona could do with an orange. <laughs> so, <laughs> A genuine real artist, one of the greatest players in the world. He could win a match on his own. Francisco Conejo, Maradona's youth coach. He was from another planet. He was different. And yoga Maradona himself. I worked hard all my life for this. Those who say I don't deserve deserve anything, that it all came easy, can kiss my ass.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A fitting fitting last,
0: uh, last quote, I think. It says something about the man, doesn't it? That so many people from across the game all say good things I always think whenever you get this situation with sports people a measure of the person is what other people think and often people that were adversaries and I think pretty much anyone who's anyone in football has said what a wonderful talent he was and it's a, a shame that in the last couple of decades of his life he was known for other antics and drug and alcohol problems and health problems and not being the star that he was but Um, At the end of the day, that's, uh, you know, I wonder whether we ever see somebody as dominant in the game. as that again? Um, And contrast that with Peter Shilton, who's still moaning about being... Oh, he
2: just won't let go, will he? Yeah, just (laughs) can not let go. The main kind of two things which stood out to me when I saw the news and obviously spoke to you guys. The first is that the person whose footballing opinion I value the most in the world is probably my uncle's. Um, he was the one who got me into following Spurs and um, he's a very wise man, has lived in Spain his whole life and you know, has, has lived in Spain throughout the eras of Ronaldo and Messi, who are you know, young kids like to think of as the greatest ever and that you know nothing ever happened before them. And he's always just said to me he doesn't think he's seen as good a player as Maradona um so when he tells me that then i know and um, the second thing i thought which um i hope you boys will join me for and i'd recommend anyone listening uh, to think about um i saw a very um fitting tribute which basically said you know the greatest sportsmen we like to think of them as being immortal but when you get the chance to go watch them play take that chance like you'll never you'll never regret getting you know, paying over the odds to get a Barca ticket to sit in road God knows what of the Camp Nou and watch Messi for one game. You know, you'll never, you, you won't regret going to um, Juventus' stadium and and seeing Ronaldo, even at thirty four, thirty five. I don't care. Like these are, you know, memories that we should all cherish. And I think if any of us have any sporting heroes that we want to, we want to see in the flesh, both us and listeners should endeavour to to see them in real life whenever
1: we can. Mm. You never know when that moment goes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Watching Ronaldinho in Barcelona in a drab 3-0 win against Recreativo, but he scored a penalty and that will live with me forever. So, yeah, absolutely. Go and see them watch you can.
0: Mm. And while we're on the subject of people we've lost, uh, also announced uh, yesterday that uh, Papa Bubba Diop has died at uh, 42, spent most of his career in England at uh, Fulham, Birmingham City and Portsmouth uh, played six times against Spurs, including in the FA Cup semi-final in 2009-10, which Portsmouth went on to to win the cup that year. Um, key player for, for Fulham when um, when he was at the height of his game,
2: wasn't he, Jules? Yeah, he was. Um, brilliant player. Um, really dominant, but always very well thought of. Um, I think an, an underrated technical player as well. I think sort of people assumed that he was only kind of a... a I don't know, kind of a dominant presence in the middle of the park who could uh, kind of impose his his physical kind of capabilities on opposition, but he was much more than that. And again, someone who, when you see the reaction of people um, to him, I think it's kind of a tribute to the person as well as to the player, which is always nice to see.
0: Sure. So uh, just moving on then to uh, some of the uh, football since we last recorded uh, Spurs back in Europa League action, fairly comprehensive win to be honest against Ludogorets. Not too many, <laughs> not too many problems uh, in this one. Ash, this was pretty routine in the end, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was so easy. It actually, got really boring. <laughs> yeah, it's the type of <laughs> game have to see when you're in the stadium with a few mates, having a few drinks, you know, chatting shit about how you bought your local side to win the FA Cup in the in football manager other than that it's great that we won um and i'm happy that it was boring in the end because i'd rather that than be shitting myself for 60 minutes so it was a good all-round performance there wasn't anyone on there who underperformed at all
2: i think we have to take that though the pinch of salt that when your goalkeeper literally doesn't face a shot on goal in a match um then you have to kind of think well this is kind of a bit of a give me um, and we I think subbing off Joe Hart after 82 minutes to bring on like our fourth choice goalkeeper is a bit of a piss take like if I was a Ludogorets player I would have been a bit offended by that
1: John Bostock is no longer our youngest ever player so that's oh. something we can tick off the books at least
2: <laughs> what did you think of uh, Dane Scarlett um, I know he only had a brief kind of run around but obviously you know very very young player but interesting um, kind of profile
1: He's going to be a problem, isn't he? He's a great little player, I think. he, um, As soon as he starts to build physically, that side of things will make a world of difference. Obviously, he's got a long way to go technically, but I think we'll see massive changes as soon as he can put on a bit of bulk. He's only 16, isn't he? He's just recently turned 17. <laughs>
2: Oh no, he's, he's still sixteen, which is—I mean—I don't know what you were doing at sixteen. And, it makes you and, feel good about your life, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, Ash still has the socks to tell the tell the tale, but you know, at sixteen, he was—he uh, was certainly not not coming on the pitch for Spurs. Put it that way. Um, <laughs> bright young prospect, great to see, and um, you know, Jose trying to give. Minutes of some of the young players. Again, I thought Jack Clark came on. I I always think he looks promising. I'd like to see him maybe get a chance um, at some point. Um, So no, I think a a good productive evening. But the best thing was um, Harry Kane warmed up, sat back down and then drove home. So it meant that he got an actual week off, which is just what he probably needed.
0: And speaking of Harry Kane, all good as far as Vinicius is concerned.
2: I called it last week. I did say if Vinicius could get a couple of goals, that would be, you know, just perfect. And I mean, he looks, um, is it me? Or does, Vinicius looks really good. The more, I, I was expecting us to get like, I don't know, a Josh King level sort of backup striker. <laughs> and Vinicius is starting to look to me like worryingly, you know, first team capable.
1: Yeah, the thing that impressed me most was how intelligent he was. I can't remember who crossed him the ball, but the way he controlled it and had the composure to pick out a teammate, the amount of other players you've seen that just tried to uh, squirm away a shot just for the hat-trick, but had the composure to do that, in a, let's be honest, a relatively meaningless game as well, shows a lot of promise. It's good,
0: isn't it, as well, to have, um, with with Vinicius not being a, a Josh King and actually looking like he can be the real deal, it's, it's good to have an extra level of squad depth because you know now that if something does happen to Kane or if for any reason he goes off form or things stop working for any reason, he needs a break, it's not like the starting level is being seriously weakened by bringing in somebody else who will do that job and do it well.
2: I also think he might prove absolutely invaluable for certain games Particularly if we're playing, I'm thinking sort of bottom of the table opposition, where teams literally refuse to leave their own defensive third, and in which case you could actually go a bit old school. You'll like this, Jim, and dare I say it, you could go four four two, and you're you're playing Vinicius to be the brute, and Kane will drop off the front and kind of link the play. You know, I'm thinking if you're if you're playing uh, I mean Newcastle stands out, but we've already played them. Um, God, that was a horrible. Experience. Already had that disaster. Yeah, <laughs> that was already horrible. Against a team where I think you, or if you need to chase a goal, you know, if you're one all at 60 minutes and you've really got to kind of push, push to the win. I, I'd imagine he's Alan Shearer's kind of dream, right? Because he works very much within the width of the penalty box, stays mm-hmm. in the final third, stays ahead of any midfielders. So no, I think he could be he could be really valuable, not just as a kind of alternative to Kane when we want to rest him, but also as you say, Jim, he could start to actually push as a as an option if we
1: want to mix things up as well. Mm. We haven't seen him against a top side. I still think he's going to be fantastic against those top sides, but don't want to get ahead of myself a little bit. Let's see how he does if he gets a game in the Premier League or in the Cups against a, a bigger side.
0: Mm. So from one uh, ridiculous failure of a club in Europe to another, <laughs> back in league action on uh, Sunday...
2: I mean, what is there to say about this one, Jules? Um, I think the best way to summarise this game is with a Sir Alex Ferguson quote, um, which was, you can't win the title before Christmas, but you can lose it. And it felt like both managers just decided, I can't afford to take a loss here, but a win doesn't really kind of, you know, open the floodgates, change the season dynamic. So I'm both managers basically came with the a point will do attitude, and we refused to leave our defensive third, and Chelsea refu- refused to leave their defensive third, <laughs> and so the game ended out just being Mason Mount passing it from centre half to wing back back to the other centre half. You know, it was a bit bit dull, really.
1: No, at least we didn't have to pay fifteen ninety nine for it, did we? <laughs> oh fuck that! Um, <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah, and you're right, Joel, in that it was a fairly. just game with both sides looking to defend. But I I would argue that the B-Tech team Sherwood actually had the better of the tactical back. But, you know, 1-1, I'll take... uh, Sorry, 0-0, I'll take it. If somebody offered me four points before City and Chelsea, I would have snapped their hand off.
0: Mm. Uh, It did feel like, as well, there was a bit of something to celebrate in the sense that even though it was quite a boring game, it was a bit of a victory for doing some of the basics right. Um, I, d- I don't know what what you guys thought, but for me, I thought Sissoko was was excellent, not only in himself, but also in bringing the best out of Sir Jorier and taking care of Timo Werner in particular. But that was a case of just a job well done.
2: He's a he's a great defensive weapon, isn't he? And actually, I, it was funny. My um my girlfriend was watching it while doing paint by numbers, which, if you <laughs> haven't seen, is a is, is a hilariously excruciating experience. But she seems to enjoy it, and. She uh, She's Lebanese, she speaks four languages, and she noticed that um, she could hear a lot of French. And every time she was saying, who's saying that? And I was saying, oh, it's one of Serge, Tongi, and Musa. And I know one of the big kind of flavours which came out of the um, the Amazon series last year was how Musa Suzoko is this leadership figure. He's more than, you know, just a player. When you're playing that holding the field role, if you're helping a right back communicate and helping the number 10 feel settled and then Ndombele is picking up these pockets of space and at the same time you're blocking out, you know, the Chelsea left winger who in my, in my view is probably their biggest goal threat because I, I agree, I don't think Abraham's on the level of like, say, a Werner or Ziyech. Actually, even though I Suzoko took about three air shots in that game and genuinely seems to be a, like a human triangle who just bounces the ball off him in whatever direction he chooses that day, maybe there's actually something to it that he, he fulfills a very clear role in the team. He's a clear organiser and communicator. He's a leader for that, for that group. And defensively, you know what? I spend most of my Saturdays running around trying to stop you know whoever their best player is from
1: scoring. And maybe there's a value to it. Definitely has a role to play, and he does it really well. I feel a lot more comfortable with him playing on the right side of midfield when, um, or centre midfield when Serge Aurier is playing right back. It just seems to be far more comfortable for Serge, and he's really stepped up his game. To be fair, who knew that a little bit of pressure and a little challenge might be able to help you, you know, up your game? So, fair play to Serge.
2: He's been a favourite of yours, hasn't he, Jim? Yeah, I like solid
0: performers. I like players that aren't particularly flashy but are dependable and can do um, can do the basics right because I think they're the linchpins of a team that you need for your creative players, whether they're playmakers or uh, flashy wingers or whoever they are, to have the platform to be able to play their game. And it's just, for me, he's one of those building blocks that just allows a team to not necessarily have a head start but have a solid foundation from which you can hang bits off he's he's kind of the Christmas tree and yeah <laughs> yeah you can hang your hung mints on yeah it's sunny in your bailey uh, baubles that you can hang <laughs> on <off. laughs>
2: I, I always thought with Aurier because I remember when he came through um I believe I, I think it was at Toulouse from memory and he was a really promising young young player because he came through and you could immediately see the athleticism the tenacity the willingness to burst forward um, and was like brilliant. This guy's going to be one of the best wing backs in Europe. Then he went to PSG, and you don't know how someone's going to do there because because they walk to the title every year. Is it a challenge to play there? Honestly, like you, you don't know how someone's going to be when they leave there. Like I wouldn't take. I think it's Kerrer is their right back or centre half, and I wouldn't take him at Tottenham. You know, would, no. would Burnat get in at Tottenham? Maybe not. So you don't know how a player's going to develop there. And then when he came to Tottenham, my brother pointed out to me that one of the things with Oreo is that he was always trying to play as if he was still with like Neymar and co. Like he would try and chest the ball back from the goalkeeper or he would try and make overlapping runs in a certain way. And what he didn't realise was that just do the simple things well. Like this is a division where you're not going to have 70% of the ball in every match. You're going to have to be a little more streetwise. And maybe it's taken a bit of time and maybe it's a bit of Mitsuzuka getting involved. He also had some very sad news with uh, his brother was shot earlier this year. And you know, there's clearly been a lot of emotional maturity for him. But maybe between all these factors, Suzuki might help him have a better twenty-eight to thirty-one than he did twenty-four to twenty-seven. Do you know what I mean? Is that mad or is that is there a logic?
0: No, I think yeah. there's a logic, and you often see at, at, at pretty much every level, don't you? You see players that sometimes when they're on their own or they're in a particular partnership, they either go into their shell Mm. or have to play in a particular way that either exposes their weaknesses or makes them do things that doesn't necessarily bring out their strengths. I'm thinking if you're a particularly sort of progressive thinking, a defensive midfielder, but you know behind you that your centre-half hasn't got any pace um, or positional awareness, then you're often going to have to drop back and and not really think about the attacking part of your game because you're carrying somebody else. But then there are other partnerships where two players can complement each other perfectly because the, the strengths of one cover for the weaknesses of the other. And I think you're right, in that situation, we might yet see the best of him because he's in an environment where he's not comfortable, but he's he's able to know that he can uh, he can work on the strengths of his game.
1: Absolutely. Speaking of having to cover for centre-backs, we saw Roden come in for his debut. I know there was a bit of chat in the WhatsApp group before. Jules, what did you think?
2: <laughs> well, I, I may or may not have described him in quite derisory terms uh, in the WhatsApp group. Um, no, look, I, my gut instinct with him is that I don't think he looks. I, I think he got through this game okay, but I don't think he looks like a Champions League level defender at any point in his career the two things that stood out for me were one that he's incredibly bad on the ball and it's one thing to make simple passes not under pressure but i think his first touch he tried to carry the ball wide and he realized tammy abraham was within about five meters of him and tried to pass it up the line and just spooned it into touch and there are a couple of times where it's like, well, you, you can get 85% pass accuracy if you're going back to Lloris the whole time or if there's, you know, space, but does he look
1: like he's got the technical ability? I, I don't think so. I would say that his, his starting position generally was really good. And I don't know how much of that is him and how much of that is having Lloris and Diane next to him, which are both, you know, really vocal leaders, but generally speaking, he started in the right place. Um, and, He, unlike Sanchez, he did judge when to go in for the header correctly more often than not. After
0: that nil-nil snooze fest, Spurs stay top of the league. Um, We were talking last week. Tom asked me whether I thought that Spurs are title contenders, and I said, as it stands, yes. Um, Ten games in now, it's more than a quarter of the season Just looking at the live league so Spurs and Liverpool both on 21, Chelsea on 19, Um, and you've got a clutch of other clubs, Leicester, West Ham, Southampton, Wolves, Everton, a few points back. And then United on 16, City on 15. So there's six points between Spurs top and City in 11th. Ash, has anything in that game made you either change your mind or think differently about the title race?
1: No, I don't think so. I think we're looking at a where points in the mid-80s might be enough to win you the league. It doesn't look like anyone is going to absolutely run away with it. And if uh, we played how we expected to play, I don't know if you watched the uh, live game, which we'll come on to later. But um, the way that Brighton played against them actually gives me a lot of confidence because essentially they did what we do, but we do it better. So um, you know, there's there's a lot to take. I don't think I don't think anything has changed this week from last week in any team's any one team's performance. I don't know if you'd agree, Jules.
2: I think I'd agree. My concern, I I, I still worry about the big two. I, I I agree that the I don't think the table is going to be won by a team with 95 points this year I think it'll be 80 to 85 I still think Liverpool have this aura about them they've got that that sort of grisliness which mm-hmm. Peak Ferguson did um, and yes they won't have Gomez for the season or most of the season they won't have Van Dijk but no I think look they didn't spend the piggy bank in the summer so I, I would be astonished if Liverpool didn't pick up maybe another centre-half in January and then the second half of the season looks quite different my biggest fear, though, still is City, who I, I always feel like uh, sometimes with a side like that when they, they just can't quite seem to score, but they're dominating games, it sometimes takes a breakthrough match to smash several past your opponent, feel a bit big in your boots, and then you go on a bit of a run. You know, City's next kind of set of games, they've got Fulham, sorry Villa, Fulham, United, West Brom, Southampton, Newcastle. So until the end of December, for me, they've got such a winnable run of fixtures. They, they're already through in their Champions League group, so they can rest players there, they can rotate. And if they just slot five from five, I think the table looks quite different.
0: I tend to agree that City will come into the race. Um, they're, only, say they're only six points off the top with a game in hand. I don't see them winning five on the spin, but... Frankly, I don't see Spurs, Liverpool, or Chelsea winning five on the spin either. So it, it's tight, but it's that makes it interesting, doesn't it? So uh, all the better for it, I suppose. Uh, and on that note, being positive and looking forward, uh, this week's Europa League uh, game is against LASK uh, of Austria. I don't think we need to go into too much detail, and we've touched on it before. My question would be: How seriously do we take this game? And I ask that because as the Europa League table stands at the moment, there's this weird situation where if Spurs either win or draw against LASK, it's job done. But if for any reason they slip up and lose that game, it would leave Spurs needing to win pretty handsomely against Antwerp because of the <laughs> because of the head-to-head record. Uh, and with <laughs> that slight interlude, is because of the introduction of usual chair. Tom, who has just joined us nearly an hour late.
3: Hello, Van. Wagwan. I presume you've covered the game of chess that was uh, Chelsea away. Yeah, we slept our way through that. Uh, How
0: seriously do you take Lask on Thursday?
3: Well, do you want to know what I think? Yes, that's why I asked. (laughs) Okay, it's going to be a piece of piss, isn't it, lads? It's just going to be like Goretz, but probably with a higher score, like the biggest game. Is going to be the Antwerp game because of the head-to-head, which I think you were talking about before I turned up. Yeah, <laughs> I,
2: I couldn't agree more. I also think in the Europa League, the, my only kind of caveat is that the first knockout round can be a bit of a buy if you top your group. So personally, I wouldn't be opposed to making sure we we deal with matters on Thursday because if it means your your first you know knockout match in what would it be February. It's really, really easy.
1: Yeah, let's let's go. Let's, let's turn up. Let's rip them to pieces and move on to to Pastures New.
0: Very well. Uh, speaking of uh, Pastures New, Arsenal continue to be an absolute shambles. Yeah. Uh, which brings us on to the North London derby. Who wants to take the floor for this
3: one? I don't know if anyone's seen the most rendition of Arsenal fan TV. Absolutely hilarious. <laughs> it's paramount that they're going to get stuffed. And I love it. I absolutely cannot get enough. I will snort it until my heart stops. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, on the face of it,
0: Arsenal are absolutely dire this season. They genuinely look like a mid-table side at best. Often with derbies, we talk about things, all the clichés come out about form going out of the window and the heat of the occasion taking over. Jules, is that going to happen this weekend? Or is there clear blue water between these two sides?
2: I do think there's clear blue water. Um, I think the levels in in all departments of the team, it's quite quite obvious at the moment. My big concern would be that as much as we like to, to piss about and sort of think, well, fans don't matter. And, you know, is it sort of derby if you don't have fans in the stadium? For those players, it very, very much is. Um, and if you're arsenal you, know, you you never know how a game's going to go what you know what if shaka who's got a particularly nasty streak in him the the slow fat lazy left footer speaking as a slow <laughs> fat lazy left footer um, but if you know if shaka goes through the back of harry kane's calf how does the tottenham team react to that you know does it kick off a bit is there a bit of edge to the game i think we have to bear in mind i, th- I think the key to winning this match actually is to go into it knowing Particularly as an ex Arsenal player, Arteta's going to have his team riled up. They've been piss poor. They know they have been. The manager's an ex player for the club. They're going to come out and they're going to be aggressive and shitty. And when you've got midfielders like um, Zabayos and Xhaka, and you've got youth team players in there who have grown up with that rivalry, that's a lot of aggro, but it's got a very, very, very sharp cutting edge in the form of a And he's pace. And that worries me with Rodon. So that is my that is my fear is that we need to go into it, stay above the, you know, the angst and the aggro, and just do our thing. You know, Hoysberg should dominate that midfield area. You don't want to get in a slugfest. You want to keep things professional and actually play good football.
1: I'm expecting it to be a fun game. I'm expecting one or two goals to to clinch it and if I'm honest I feel we're more likely to score those goals but we're going to do them next we're going to absolutely do them it's going to be easy don't worry about it <laughs> I, don't,
2: I don't know if you make many changes in a game like this I this is one of the games where if Tanganga or uh, or Sanchez was fit I would like to see just a bit of covering pace at full at a, sorry at centre-back against a team where you know their front line is just pace
1: be a very Jose move wouldn't it that's what he tends to do with his centre backs he matches them up with the the forwards in the attacking team so when he's got his full complement of defenders available you tend to see him pick the bigger the stronger ones against sides that have big strong centre forwards or they're really strong at set pieces.
0: Speaking of changes Troy Deeney uh, who often speaks very well and is considered to be quite an eloquent and forward-thinking footballer has come in for quite a lot of criticism today for an interview on Talk Sport, and, and dare I say rightly so. Uh, after Arsenal uh, lost to Wolves last night, um, Raul Jimenez spent the night in hospital after a clash of heads with David Luiz. Uh, David Luiz in the game played on despite very obviously looking like he was groggy and Troy Deeney told talk sport this morning quote as a player you know when something is not right so what I would say is from watching David Luiz from the next 20 odd minutes afterwards he never looked shaky on his feet his legs weren't gone from underneath him, so they followed all the protocols in terms of he's ticked every box he goes on to say how many things have already been taken away from players you're already told how much you can run how much you can't by sports scientists uh, and he basically makes the case that there needs to be uh, in his words more trust uh, and that a player with a head injury should be the one to decide whether they're in a fit position to, um, to carry on. Um, now, obviously, for anyone with a brain cell uh, injury or not, <laughs> that's, um, that's not a, a very intelligent thing to be saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, let's keep this Sean concise. It's stupid, it's incorrect, and it's dangerous. And Troy Deanley, frankly, you know it's factually incorrect. It's stupid. Concussion doesn't necessarily make you look shaky on your feet. And also it shouldn't require you being shaky on your feet for you to be subbed off the pitch. Um, you know, we need to take head injuries much more seriously in the game of football. We need to look at the fact that the majority of the 66 squad suffered dementia in their latest in their later years. We need to listen to people who are actually well informed on the subject that doesn't mean me but that (laughs) that means listen to scientists and listening to listen to people who actually understand the in the impacts and the implications and Troy Deeney on that occasion has been a mug you know I I, I've got a lot of respect for him as a player and but on this occasion um he's wrong and they should call him out on it rather than airing his
1: views Mm ironically it gave me a headache just listening to it it's so it's such a short-term way to see it and like, like you mentioned jules it's not just about being groggy and i can only imagine the reason why he's saying what he's saying is because he's just taking a point of the view as well if a player can stand up and he's not falling over the place and he's fine to play but concussion and, we all, and just... we all
2: remember and we all remember that troy is clearly a licensed medical professional who's who's you know got qualifications in this area and understands what the hell he's talking about he's definitely not a professional athlete whose assumption is that if you can be a hard man, then you stay on your feet and you get on with the game.
0: Salty. Yeah. It it does remind me of, I I once interviewed the wife and daughter of Jeff Astle, uh, who was a club legend at West Brom in the 60s and 70s, and he died in uh, the early 2000s, having headed the ball a lot uh, and having suffered brain injury not not through a clash of heads but just repetitive brain trauma and really it takes for you to go and see the family of somebody that died decades before they should have done so to, to listen and just go yeah actually football probably needs to get a grip of this kind of thing and rather than worrying about what the consequences would be for the game thinking instead about what the consequences are for the uh, for the athletes so um so, yeah, I think we'll take the, the word of the Astle family over that of Troy Deeney on this one. Part of the conversation at the moment, though, is the, the strain that uh, players are under at all levels uh, because of the condensed calendar uh, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, no stranger to whinging about this is uh, Jurgen Klopp, who was uh, at it again at weekend after Liverpool's draw with Brighton. Don't know about you, Ash, but... I'm getting a bit fed up of Jurgen Klopp
1: complaining about this sort of stuff. If there was ever a club that didn't need a whiny, whingy manager that wanted every decision overlooked and wanted to get government involved every time a decision went against them... Um, in terms of penalties and free kicks and this and that it was probably liverpool we've all seen the amount of uh, stuff they've got started to try and get um discussions had in parliament for whatever reason about oh because we we didn't get this free kick or we didn't get that penalty and it's just so annoying that he's just become their poster boy for it he's so we had a discussion last week about pep and his saltiness and Klopp is just taking it to another level. It's just ridiculous. He's he's acting like he's the only team that has to face with this difficult situation. I mean, he's got a team of 25 players plus however many youth, youth players you want to chuck in there. And a team with their level of resources, they're in the best position to be able to rotate and and to be able to meet the meet the stresses of, of the fixture list. So if anyone shouldn't be complaining... It surely shouldn't be him. He, he needs to make the changes under the advice of his sports scientists. And that's, that's the way it is. I, I get it. He, five five subs, I would have voted for it. But you don't have it. So stop moaning. Get on with it.
2: I, I also think there's two things that stood out to me here. The first, I, I completely agree with you, Ash, that with the squad they've got, the reason that they're playing the same team every week isn't that they've got 15 people. It's that he wants to start the same 11. So if you really care about your player welfare, then don't get, don't start Robinson. Start the other lad you brought for twelve million pounds in the summer. I'm sure there's plenty of clubs who would just be delighted to have twelve million pounds right now. Let alone twelve million pounds on a backup left back you only want to bring on for the final twenty. Mm-hmm. You know, if you really care about player welfare, rotate your players. Yes, it's not. You know, yes, that would be easier if you had five subs. But if you don't then you can't blame the rules for being what they are. And I think Chris Wilder's actually got a point. If he's the one saying, well, five subs lets you start your better players week in, week out. Well, yeah, he's right, because Robbo starts every match, because Trent starts every match, because Van Dyke, when fit, starts every match. So, you know, you're, he's kind of shooting at the wrong person. Every team has
0: these uh, kind of pileups at the moment. And I think you're both right uh, in what you say. I agree with everything um, from the both of you. I was just looking at, at my own team's fixture pilot because we've had three weeks off because of Covid and gone further in the FA Cup than uh, National League sides are generally ex- expected to go. Uh, in December, we are due to play on the 5th, 8th, 12th, 15th, 19th, 22nd, <laughs> 26th, and 28th. And then there are seven fixtures in January.
2: Do you need a backup
0: See, left back? Our manager just said, you know what? We are where we are. It's not ideal. The squad will be stretched. We'll have to rotate. But you just get on with it because that's the world we live in. Wouldn't it be a bit more refreshing if a few more people were just like that? Agreed. agree. Before we uh, wrap this thing up, given that Fenn
3: is here... Uh, well, I haven't told you my opinion on uh, why I'm an expert in head injuries. What this pandemic has taught me, Jim, is that because I've got... A double science award in GCSE science, I'm now an expert in science. Are <laughs> you an so, epidemiologist? <laughs> well, that too but um, uh, f- f- physiolo- a yeah, physiologist, yeah I'll go with that. and um, a every, neuroscientist. Every good, do- yeah. every good doctor I mean,
2: can't say his own profession.
3: Yeah, but like, <laughs> someone put it in a Facebook video, so <laughs> I understand it pretty well and I don't really know why someone would lie to me on the internet, so I think Troy Dini must therefore have a point
0: <laughs> So moving on to a bit of trivia uh, We're recording on the 30th of November Can anyone tell me uh, Which momentous Spurs game Happened 63 years ago today
2: Is it Spurs Arsenal in
3: our title winning season by any chance No Well let's do some maths here uh, Jules' quick maths are way off Because yeah. <laughs> really, the, the year is ending in one um, I've, I've had a beer six, 63 years ago is what? 30th 19, of so?
0: November, 1957.
3: I'm a manager or something to do with Bill Nickerson, I don't
0: know. It's the league game that was uh, was of interest. It was uh, that's Old Trafford, Manchester United 3, Spurs 4. At the time, United were third in the league and Spurs very much weren't. Uh, they were without an away win all season at that point. Uh, United went 1-0 up. But then Spurs scored four goals in the space of 25 minutes to go four-one up. Uh, had a bit of a wobble at the end, but held on for the win. A hat trick in that game was scored by a chap called Bobby Smith, who that season ended up with uh, a bit weird, ended up being Spurs' top scorer with 36 league goals, which was broken uh, by Jimmy Greaves five years later uh, when he hit 37. So there you go don't you feel enlightened now you know that Uh, so uh, before we wrap this up then uh, two games for for us to think about score predictions for Lask
3: first of all Tom is it away at Lask yes I'm still going to say (laughs) 5-0 I'm feeling confident this week I'll go 3-0 I'll go 2-0
0: I will go for 4-1 so then, on to bigger and more interesting things. North London Derby, Ash.
1: I think it's likely to be one of the more boring ones we've ever seen. Two sides that don't want to lose. One goal, I think, will win it. And I think Harry Kane will get it.
3: 1-0 Spurs. Sam? I think Jose's got to prove a little bit of a point, And he want a fresh to prove a point. 3 nil Spurs, let's go. <laughs> I'm going to say an annoying one all draw.
0: Yeah, I'm... I'm inclined to agree. So just for the sake of being different, I will go for the trusty old Desmond (laughs) Um, 2-2. On that note, I think we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for joining us. Do come back next week when Tom will be back in the big chair and everything will feel better.